today, just as we did last Sunday on Easter Day. In the church calendar, we now move into the season of Easter, during which there's time to reflect a little bit more on the resurrection appearances which uh, the risen Lord Jesus made before the disciples and before many others in this period between Easter and the Ascension, when Jesus finally returned to assume his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. And I hope on these Sundays we'll have the opportunity to reflect a little bit more on the meaning and the significance of the cross. For these are multifaceted, a bit like a well-cut diamond sparkling in the light. Now, when we speak of the cross, let's be clear what we're talking about. The gospel writers, the writer of the book of Hebrews and the apostle Peter, when they speak of the cross, they're referring pretty much to the physical cross which Jesus was forced to carry and upon which Jesus gave his life. Jesus himself speaks about us carrying our cross, by which he means how we live and what example we set by how we live our lives. And the words that Jesus spoke from the cross are recorded that we might hear and learn and apply these brief final teachings to help us in our living. The Apostle Paul uses the cross in a slightly different way. He uses it as a kind of shorthand for the death of Christ. So when Paul speaks of the power of the cross, he's not speaking about any particular attribute of the cross upon which Jesus gave his life. Rather, Paul is talking about the meaning and the significance about what, of what Jesus did. So over the next two weeks, I plan to reflect on Jesus' words spoken from the cross, for there we gain an insider's view of what was happening through the eyes of Jesus himself. And then we'll go on to consider the significance of the cross. But today, on this second Sunday of the season of Easter, I'd like us to begin with the meaning of the cross, so that we have a full and clear understanding of why Jesus died and what is absolutely clear is that the cross, Jesus' death, is of central importance in the New Testament. And so it's of central importance in the life and the witness of the church. <laughs>
power of the cross. Let's pray. Our God, from the high excitement and the marvel of Easter Day last week, we humbly approach you and we come now to worship you seven days on. For death could not contain nor hold down Jesus Christ. And so on this Sunday, and indeed every moment of every day, we offer you thanks for Christ's risen presence. What was true that first Easter Sunday had started for some to sink in seven days later. The possibilities for ongoing life beginning to form, even if almost imperceptibly. They did not expect an empty tomb or a voice in the graveyard calling their name. They did not expect a visit and words of peace and reassurance. They did not expect a gift as you breathed on them and offered the Holy Spirit. And yet, all of these things happened, and all of these things shaped their future lives. Our God, we can only marvel at the roller coaster ride of emotions experienced by those first disciples. And we offer our thanks for their dedication and faithfulness in the years that followed. For these disciples, empowered by your Holy Spirit, took your good news and spread it, and eventually it reached these shores of ours. It reached our ears, and it changed us just as it changed them. So we offer thanks for the faithfulness of all those who passed on that gospel message. Living God for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for the struggles and the commitment of the apostles, for all those who passed on the faith generation after generation, we offer you our thanks today and pray now the prayer of the church. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. One Corinthians chapter 1 Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength.
Lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaimed till all the world adore his sacred name. You know, without any hesitation, we can say that Christianity is a religion of love. We can say that God is a God of love. And we can say with assurance that we love because God has loved us first. The Apostle Paul expounds at length on the theme of love in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13. It's a famous passage in which Paul is speaking about a husband and wife, about a bridegroom and bride, for Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And that said, it is a passage that's still often read at weddings when a human bridegroom and bride come together in marriage. For in these few short verses, there is also a blueprint for the basis of stable, fulfilling relationships between a husband and wife based on that love which never fails. John, in his gospel account, has given the world the most famous verse in the Bible, and probably the most quoted and the most translated, for it speaks to us of the full extent of the love of God. We find it in John chapter 3, verse 16, and it begins much as we might expect, for God so loved the world. But then rather strangely, it introduces this concept of our human mortality, because it goes on that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not die, but have eternal life. Death is somehow inextricably linked with love. The writer C.S. Lewis, perhaps most famous for his Narnia Chronicles, wrote several other books. And in his book entitled A Grief Observed, which was written after the death of his wife Joy, C.S. Lewis reflected, the pain I feel now is the happiness I had before. That's the deal. That phrase was later to play a prominent part in the stage play in the film Shadowlands. As he often did in his writing, Lewis really nailed it. This is the great truth of loving each other here on earth. The pain then is the price of the happiness now. And the only shield that we have to protect ourselves from pre-grieving that loss is faith in God's eternal love and in the belief that after our bodies die, our souls will reunite with all those in heaven. And the reason for that hope is made through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That hope is made possible, as Paul would put it, through the cross. And John in his gospel is absolutely right. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's right there in the gospel. And yet, there are parts of the Bible, particularly parts, I think, of the Old Testament, where the the whole notion and nature of death seems to be somewhat at odds with the God of love. So, should we focus on speaking about the love of God rather than the death of Christ? Well, I think not. For anyone who makes an honest investigation of the Gospels, looking for pointers to the God of love, will be immediately struck by the Gospel emphasis on death, especially the death of Jesus. And as we have seen over the past few weeks, especially in the disproportionate amount of space that the evangelists devote to the last week of Jesus' life, there is this emphasis on Jesus' death. So, where did this emphasis on death come from? Well, in fact, the gospel writers had learned it from Jesus Himself. For on three separate and solemn occasions, Jesus had predicted His own death, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed. It must happen, Jesus insisted because it had been foretold in the Scriptures. And Jesus referred to his death as his hour, the hour for which he had come into the world. Now, when Jesus spoke these words at first, he repeatedly said that the hour was not yet did that in the early stages of his ministry, as if he didn't want to reveal his hand too soon. But at last, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus woke his slumbering disciples, he was able to say to them that the hour has come. I think the Apostle Paul must have been thinking of the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus when he wrote to the Romans of how in the kingdom of God love fulfills the law, because he uses a very similar phrase. He says that all the commandments are summed up by Jesus in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, Paul urges his readers to wake up. He says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So, let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh.
You see, for Paul, death and love were bound together. And perhaps most strikingly of all is the way in which Jesus himself said he wanted to be remembered. You'll recall that in the upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples had gone to share a final meal together on the night that he was betrayed. And it was during that meal that Jesus instructed his disciples to take and to break and to eat bread in memory of his body, which was to be given for them. And then to take and to pour and to drink wine in memory of his blood to be shed for them. Death spoke from both these elements, the bread and the wine. There is no symbolism that could be any clearer. How did Jesus want to be remembered? Was it for his example? Was it for his teaching? Was it for his words or his works? No, it was for none of these things. It was not even for his living body or his flowing blood, but it was for his body given and his blood shed in death. Of all the symbols that could be taken from the life of Jesus, the crib when he was a baby, symbolizing the incarnation, the carpenter's bench that he must have worked at alongside his father Joseph, speaking of the dignity of human labor, or perhaps the towel in the upper room, the service symbol, the symbol of humble service. No, all of these many symbols and others were bypassed in favor of the symbol of the cross, the object of shame and derision in the Greco-Roman world. The centrality of the cross is there in the New Testament. It was fundamental to the Apostle Paul, so much so that in his first letter to the Corinthians, he writes, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What was it about the cross that caused Paul to say that he glorified in the cross? How can we believe, as Paul did, in the love of God when there appears to be so much evidence to contradict it? Well, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5, we find Paul spelling out two major means by which we become sure that God loves us. The first is that he has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. The second is that God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So how then can we doubt God's love? 
Yes, it's true that we're often perplexed by the tragedies of life. But God has both proved His love for us in the death of His Son, and God has poured His love into us by the gift of His Holy Spirit. So, both objectively in history and subjectively in experience, God has given us good grounds for believing in His love. Commenting on this, the late Reverend Dr. John Stott wrote, the integration of the historical ministry of God's Son on the cross with the contemporary ministry of His Spirit in our hearts is one of the most wholesome and satisfying features of the gospel. Of course, what the Bible does not do is solve the problem of suffering, but it does give us the right perspective from which to view it. And suffering is undoubtedly the single greatest challenge to Christian faith. How can suffering possibly be reconciled with God's justice and God's love? Well, in another book entitled, Where is God When It Hurts?, the author Philip Yancey asks this question. If God is truly in charge, why is He so capricious, unfair? Is He the cosmic sadist who delights in watching us squirm? You see, what makes suffering insufferable is not so much the pain that is involved as the feeling that God somehow doesn't care, that God is somehow indifferent to the sufferings in the world. But friends, that's a slanderous caricature of God, and the cross smashes it to smithereens. And we need to be reminded of that again and again and again. And that's what Scripture gives us. Now, I'm sure that you are no different from me. There are times when we are absolutely torn with anguish, and sometimes we can even doubt the goodness and the love of God. These kind of times are no doubt ahead of me, just as they have been part of my past. And what I found is that I need to be reminded that it's that very moment that I should begin climbing the hill called Calvary. And from that unique vantage ground, then survey all the calamities of life. For Scripture assures us that our God is a suffering God. Our God is far from being immune to suffering. And the God who allows me to suffer 
and who allows you to suffer, once suffered himself in Jesus Christ, and he continues to suffer with us today. We see him weeping over the impenitent city of Jerusalem. We see him dying on the cross. Truly, the cross is at one and the same time an atonement for sin and a revelation of love.
Well, God willing, next week we'll have the opportunity to reflect upon Jesus' final words from the cross, words spoken in that pivotal moment, words of great love for us, and we'll reflect on his dreadful work of sin-bearing and then of his final triumph and victory. So that's 11 o'clock on YouTube channel next Sunday. Until then, may the blessing of God, the ever-present Father, the ever-living Son, the ever-active Holy Spirit descend upon you and stay with you now and always. Amen.